0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to this morning's sermon text from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 10 through 17. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with Him.
1: You have told us in Your Word, Father, that the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. The voice of the Lord strips the forest bare. And everyone in the temple cries, Glory. Glory. So, Father, I pray that you would speak now out of your word, that you would stand forth in your word and by your word, and that there would be accomplished in these next few minutes more than any man could ever accomplish in all of time. I look away from myself and my own resources, and I ask that you'd be our teacher now, our enabler, You'd open the eyes of the blind. You'd release my tongue. And I ask it in the name of the one whose death we just declared. Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Three weeks ago, I blew a trumpet here for what I called planting a passion, namely to light a fire in you that I hope is still simmering for starting a new, strong, God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated, soul-winning, justice-pursuing church somewhere else in the Twin Cities this year. And then two weeks ago, I fastened on to that phrase, justice pursuing, and talked about the pursuit of racial justice. A week ago, I fastened on that phrase, justice pursuing, and focused on justice for the unborn. And you remember, in, in all of that, I was praying and pleading that God would be pleased to raise up Coronary Christians, not adrenal Christians. In the pursuit of causes that are bigger than yourself, your family, and this church. Coronary. Meaning, this ticker in here serves us every minute. It never says, I don't like your attitude, I take a vacation. Love dub, love dub, with no gratitude disposed toward it. Just keep serving you and serving you and serving you day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and I don't want to be one of those. I don't want to be a sprinter. I want to be a marathoner. I want to find the pace to finish the race. I don't want to drop over halfway through the cause and coast the rest of the way or just play. And you don't either. We want to be coronary, marathon, Wilberforce-like Christians. One of Wilberforce's... Enemies, You remember Wilberforce, right? Decade after decade until he won the victory in the abolition of the slave trade in Britain. One of his enemies said about him, It is necessary to watch him as he is blessed with a very sufficient quantity of that enthusiastic spirit which so far from yielding, that it grows more vigorous from blows. (laughs) In other words, knock him down, and he gets up stronger. There are not many people like that in America. You knock a typical American down, what does he do? Number one, he feels self-pity, and he whines. Number two, he says, where was God? And number three, he sues somebody. (laughs) There are not many people like Wilberforce who you knock them down in a cause of righteousness. They're doing good. And they get knocked down. They get up not with fresh plans for revenge, but fresh plans of love. Stronger. In the cause for which they're living. There are many of those around. And I've been preaching trying to say, come on Bethlehem, let's not only be those, let's plant a passion like that somewhere else. Let's create another one of those places where people pursue justice for racial justice and justice for the unborn with not a flash in the pan once a year on the Martin Luther King weekend but with the lub-dub marathon-like Wilberforce-like never-say-die-get-up-when-you're-knocked-down kind of stick that Jesus had. So that's what I've been preaching toward and for. And now here we are at Romans again. Romans 8. And guess what? I'm still trying to plant a passion. I'm still preaching towards justice pursuing and soul winning and God-centeredness and Christ exaltation. Because what I find here in verses 12 and 13 is a great help to do that. In fact, what I think this text is saying is if you're going to be that kind of person who gets up when you're knocked down... Instead of planning revenge, plans fresh strategies of love and justice. Instead of questioning God, you trust God that he had a good purpose in your getting knocked down and he loves you. And he'll turn it all for your good. Instead of whining, you rejoice in tribulation and come out refined like steel instead of consumed. If you're going to be that kind of person... This text says you have to learn a certain skill, namely how to kill sin. Your sin. Self-pity, pride, grudge-holding, loving the praise of man. So if we're going to be coronary Christians, we're going to press on in love and joy. Where does that kind of person come from? They don't come out of nowhere. Wilberforces do not come out of nowhere. You know where they come from? They come from furnaces where they've been knocked down and burned so many times that they've learned how to make war on the sins in their own heart that tend to rise up in response to that kind of treatment. The furnaces from which Wilberforce-like Christians come is the furnace of war against sin fought mainly in our own soul. Let's read these verses. Romans eight twelve. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. Literally, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But... If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, if you're going to be a coronary, marathon-like, Wilberforce-like, justice-pursuing, passion-planting Christian, or any kind of Christian for that matter, this text says, you got to stop paying debts to your slave master flesh. Why pay for your destruction? Isn't that an amazing phrase? We are debtors, not to the flesh. To don't pay. The flesh asks for your affection and your bondage. You don't pay. You owe the flesh nothing but enmity. You owe the flesh nothing but war. You know what the flesh is, don't you? I know this is a biblical, fancy religious word. The flesh... It's not your skin. The flesh is the old, rebellious, self-sufficient, proud, make-it-yourself-do-your-own-thing nature that we all have. And guess what? You don't owe Him anything. Except war. Make war on Him. So if we're going to be justice-pursuing, coronary, long-term, Wilberforce-like, get-up-when-you're-knocked-down kinds of Christians, then we have to not be in a pay-off-your-debt-to-the-flesh mentality, but rather a wartime mentality. Brothers and sisters, don't dally with your destroyer. Don't pay for your own destruction. You don't have any debts to him, though he makes you feel like you do. It's called addiction. Well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to not pay off the flesh? He gives the answer positively in verse 13. If you're going to be free from the flesh... You're going to have to learn how to kill sin. Verse 13, second half of the verse. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, this is a dangerous language. So let's be careful here. Because we live in a very volatile moment in history where language about killing is not metaphorical anymore. Okay? So, let's get real clear. Whose sin are you supposed to kill? Your wife's? Wrong. Husbands? Wrong. Children? Wrong. Neighbor? Wrong. Boss? Wrong. Osama Bin Laden's? Wrong. Yours? Your own? Not me pointing my finger at you saying, You kill your sin! Rather, it's John Piper, Kill your sin. Make war on your sin, John, and then you do it for you. That's what this is about here. Me and my sin, because if I'm going to become a justice-pursuing, Wilberforce-like, long-term, marathon Christian, i got to make war, not on you, on me. I have to make war on me, and you have to make war on you. And if we would all make war on ourselves... And our sin. And learn what verse 13 means when it says, If by the Spirit you kill the deeds of your own body, what a new day would come in the church of Jesus Christ. You know who the great teacher of the church was on this matter? Of killing our own sin? It was John Owen. Because he wrote a little 86-page book called... The mortification of sin. I understand in the 17th century, which is when he lived, to mortify didn't mean to embarrass. It meant to kill. So on page 5, he writes this very famous sentence. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's what this verse says. That whole book, by the way, is an exposition of Romans eight thirteen. Get it. It's in volume 6 of his works. If you don't read another word in volume 6, just read those 80 pages and it'll be worth the big money. You'd have to shell out to get that fat volume. My mother, when I was 15, gave me a Bible. King James... Uh, Schofield reference Bible. And in the front of it, she wrote these words. Johnny, I read it again last night. I still have the Bible it's on the shelf behind me here. I pull it out to smell it every now and then, just to remind me of grace. Johnny, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Sound familiar? So here's Owen saying, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And here's my mother, who never heard of John Owen, saying, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And you should ponder, hmm, hmm. Is there a connection there? And then you go to verse 13, and what you see is, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and you should ask, hmm, by the Spirit, by the Spirit. You're supposed to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. What's the one offensive weapon, according to Ephesians six seventeen, in the hand of the Spirit? It's the sword. And the sword is, tell me, the word of God. Bless you for knowing that. So my mother intuited Owen. He just intuited Owen. That's the way good mothers are. (laughs) They intuit good theology. They don't have time to read Owen. (laughs) Handling kids like me. I'm going to come back to that. Not today, but uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be back to that quotation and show you how it relates. Here's my point so far this morning. Everything in recent weeks, from December 16, when I stopped preaching on Romans until today, you thought it was a detour. It wasn't a detour. Passion for planting... Justice in racial matters, justice for the unborn. You thought all that was a detour from Romans? It's not a detour, it's application. That's just application of, you want to be a coronary Christian? You want to be a Wilberforce-like pursuer of justice who never says die, never gets defeated, though he gets defeated over and over and over and over again, gets up when he's knocked down stronger, keeps on hitting away at his own sin that he might stand for love and justice out there in society. You want to be one of those? Well, here's the key. Don't pay debts to the flesh, but kill sin in your own life. So we're going to spend about three weeks on these two verses because it doesn't get much more important in living the Christian life than to learn how to kill sin. So here are the four questions I think we're going to need to answer, and only one of them we will have time for today. Number one, what are the deeds of the body? Put to death the deeds of the body. What are they? Surely not all the deeds of the body. I mean, the body, according to chapter 6, is to be the instrument of righteousness. My tongue, my hands, my feet, my arms and legs, instruments of righteousness in the world. What do you mean, put to death the deeds of the body? Which ones do you have in mind? How do you discern? What, What do you mean? And second question... What is killing them involve? Do they have life? And you take the life away from them? And if you take the life of them, how do you take life away from deeds? Third question. What does by the spirit mean? That's probably the most important question. If by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, Eighty-six pages on that, he wrote. Eighty-six pages on how, by the Spirit, you put to death. There's a lot of efforts to put to death the deeds of the body that don't have anything to do with the Holy Spirit. There are morality regimens all over America and all over the world who don't do it the way this verse says to do it. They don't save anybody. They just create legalists everywhere. We need to spend a good bit of time on this. How do you kill your own sin, not in a way that will make you proud as a sin killer, but will honor the Spirit of God? Last question. Does this threat... If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Mean that you can lose your salvation? This text, don't blow that off too quickly, because there are a couple of things about this text that would make you think so. One is it's addressed to the church. Rome. If you are living according to the flesh... You're going to die. And the second thing is the death here is eternal death. It's not physical death. The reason you know that is because everybody dies physically and only some of these folks are going to die. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death, the deeds the body, you won't die. You live. So the death being spoken of is not physical death that everybody in this room is going to have. Only some of you are going to die this way. So the death we're talking about here is eternal, perishing, hell. And he's threatening the church with that. So we don't blow it off. We say, whoa, I thought we just spent four years in this church teaching justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. And here comes a threat. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to go to hell. Spoken to a church. So let's talk about that one this morning and save the other three for later. Here's my answer to the question, can you lose your salvation If you're justified, no. Now, the basis for that answer is found in verse 30 of this chapter, where Paul describes salvation from beginning to end as a work of God, with every part of it linked together like a chain that can't be broken. It goes like this, verse 30 of Romans 8. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now notice, the link between justification and glorification is so firm and secure, it's as though glorification has already happened. Everybody who is justified is going to be glorified. And it is so sure he can say everyone who is justified is virtually glorified. The chain will not be broken. Predestination, calling, justification, glorification, the chain will not be broken. So why does Paul say then to the church, presumably of justified people, And to Bethlehem this morning, and all the visitors at Bethlehem. If you are living according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here's the answer. Putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, that is daily practicing killing sin in your life is the result of being justified and the sure evidence that you've been justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. It's the result and evidence of being justified by faith. If you are making war on your own sin, then you have strong evidence that you have been united to Christ In whom is righteousness for you, in whom is pardon for you, and in whom is a mighty spirit for you and in you, by which you will inevitably put to death the deeds of the body. On the other hand, if you are living according to the flesh, not making war on the flesh, not practicing the killing of your own Sin in your own life, then there is no compelling reason for you to believe that you are in Christ or have thus ever been justified. But rather, you make a sham out of your profession and you make a lie out of your baptism and you make a a falsehood out of your church membership. And you prove yourself never to have been a Christian. Now this is really important that we review here what we, what we've seen in Romans. It's a good way back into Romans after being away for a while. Chapters one to five of, of Romans is all about justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. And the big question is, are The works that we perform, the putting to death the deeds of the body, the making war on the works of the flesh. Are these things done to get right with God? Or are they done in the power of the Spirit precisely because we are right with God? Now let Wilberforce talk one more time here. You've got to understand, Wilberforce... Two hundred years ago, he died in 1833, born in 1759. Two hundred years ago, Wilberforce was probably the most practical man on planet earth. That is, his whole passion was to do good. He assembled a list of deeds and entrepreneurial acts of justice and righteousness that was staggering for one lifetime. He got up in the morning and went to bed at night dreaming of deeds, deeds, deeds of righteousness and justice and love. And he found rich people like Hannah Moore to pay for all of them. And then he went into Congress and spoke like an angel to persuade them. And they were persuaded and gave him a standing ovation after 20 years of losing when he finally won. Because he ate and drank activity for righteousness. So know that when I read you what I'm about to read you. He wrote one big book. The name of it was A Practical View of Christianity, as you would expect. A politician to write. He was elected to parliament when he was 21. He never lost an election. He died in parliament. He was a politician to the core. Never had a day of theological education in his life. But oh, he knew his Bible. He lived a mile away from parliament near the end of his life and he quotes Psalm 119 in its entirety, 176 verses in those 15 minutes as he walked this was no ordinary politician may god raise up some among you you think i'd look with disfavor upon any of you if you got elected to city council or state senator i'd leap for joy if there would be some wilber forces among us here's what he wrote listen carefully christianity is a scheme For justifying the ungodly, by Christ dying for them when they are yet sinners, a scheme for reconciling us to God when enemies, and for making the fruits of holiness the effects and not the cause of our being justified and reconciled. Never had a day of theological education in his life. And he was a better theologian than most in his day and ours. Why? Because he knew his Romans. By heart, probably. So Romans 1 to 5 is really clear. It is meant to persuade us we are all so sinful. There's one hope for being declared righteous in the presence of God. And that is for our righteousness to be declared On the basis of another person's righteousness. Namely, Jesus Christ imputed, credited, reckoned to us by one thing, faith alone. So that when God looks upon us in Christ, he says, righteous, accepted, beloved in my Son. When you are in him, now get this. When you are united to Him by one thing, faith, you are disunited from His competitors. Sin. If you are at home with Jesus, you are at odds with sin. Not because being at odds with sin makes you at home with Jesus, but because being at home with Jesus makes you at odds with sin. This is not rocket science. This is simple. By one means, we are grafted into Jesus Christ and made His own. Faith, trusting Him, resting in Him, receiving Him as our treasure, our hope, our satisfaction. And when you are in Him and He is in you, you can no longer be married to another, as Romans 7, 4 makes so clear. We have died to the law in order that we might be united to another, to Him who is raised, that we may bear fruit for God. And then he comes to chapter 6 and 7, and what does he do? He answers the question that everybody in the universe asks after the first five. Well, if we're justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law, for united to Christ by that one single solitary mustard seed-sized faith, then let us sin that grace may abound. And he says, shall we do that? And his answer is, with a kind of stunned look on his face, Shall we who died to sin still live in it? The whole point of chapter 6 and 7 is to show us that justified people do not and cannot make peace with sin. So that here, when he says, If you live according to the flesh... You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's not giving a prescription for how to get yourself right with God. He's describing the inevitable life of those who are right with God by faith alone. Who have come home to God and being at home with God are no longer at home with sin, but are at odds with sin. So when I say come on, come on Bethlehem, come on visiting pastors, come on let's be a Wilberforce like church full of pursuers of justice, pursuers of souls, pursuers of the unborn let's be God-centered, Christ-exalting Bible-saturated, let's get up when we're knocked down let's become stronger when we're opposed (sighs) I'm not giving you a prescription for how to get yourselves right with God. I'm testing you. Are you right with God? Are you at home with God? Are you resting in Jesus alone to be your righteousness and your pardon and your power? Or are you pushing Jesus away to pay your debts to the flesh every day because you want to be a slave to somebody and not a freedman in Jesus? I'm testing you. Come on. Let's be what we're called to be in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh God, grant I pray That in these days, for the pastors here and at the conference, and for all the the folks of Bethlehem here and all the visitors, oh, I beg of you, grant that if if there's any outside of Christ, that they would forsake all fleshly, carnal efforts to get into Christ and simply receive the free offer of forgiveness and pardon and righteousness and power. May we just welcome it like little helpless children. And then, Lord, would you prove to the world that you are real and to our own consciences by a Wilberforce-like, marathon-like coronary-like commitment to pursuing justice, racial justice, justice for the unborn, and every other worthy cause in the name of Jesus. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May He lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forever. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.